Lord, who have we in heaven besides you? Who do we have here on earth besides you? Lord, for you have rescued us. Lord, that you are our rock and our foundation, a help in time of trouble. God, as we come before your word, instruct us, change us, mold us, conform us into the image of your Son. Lord, I pray that your fruit will be growing in our lives, Lord, that we would be a people who admit our need before you, God. And Lord, that you would sanctify us and make us a people that reflect your love to this world. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. We are in Matthew chapter 11. I was thinking, like, this is a great set of verses to get ready for Christmas, even though it's November, yes, I understand. But just to start getting your heart thinking about what it is that God has done to Christ at Christmas. And so um, we're going to be talking a little bit about John the Baptist and what his ministry represented. But to give you some context of what's going on, so Jesus has um, just sent his disciples out to go proclaim the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and he gave them authority so that people were being healed, demons were being cast out, the effect of sin was being reversed, and, they're having, and it's like, this is amazing. And he warns them, it's like, yes, amazing as it is, you are going to have some opposition, because this is one kingdom going against another. And that doesn't happen with neutrality. And so he, he wraps up, what is it going to mean? What, what is it going to mean for you? If you're going to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, what will this cost you? And then right at the tail end of that, John the, John the Baptist's disciples come to Jesus. Now we find that John the Baptist is in jail. And if you had remembered, there was, discussed it last time, so um, John the Baptist, who was no coward at all, goes and says, uh, so they have this, this fake king on the throne. He claims to be the king of the Jews. His name's Herod, not really Jewish, not full Jewish anyways, and he, and he's corrupt. And, and one, of, one of his problems is that he married his brother's wife, and the implication here is that they didn't, may not necessarily have divorced when he did that. He's just like, nice wife, I'll take her, right? And so John like, shows up in Jerusalem at the capital and says, hey, that's wrong. And so he's like, vocally speaking out against Herod, the king, and you know, as kings do, they don't like it when people speak out against them. So he arrests John. Puts him in prison. And as uh, Brad, my dad, Brad, okay, uh, preached <laughs> last time, like, John began to feel doubt. He began to feel doubt that Jesus was everything he said he was because uh, here he is preaching against injustice, and yet injustice reigns. And he's a victim of injustice. And, and he's just wondering, are you truly the Messiah? Are you going to reverse the effects of injustice and sin in this world? And so he's sitting there with lots of time to think about it in a cold dungeon. Like, Jesus, are you really the one that we were waiting for? Okay, so I'm just going to read um, Matthew 11, verse 1, and then we'll read to the end of 19. 
So when Jesus had finished instructing the twelve disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. And as they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out to see in the wilderness? A reed shaken by the wind? What did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in the king's houses. Then what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my message before you, who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you're willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears, let him hear. But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like a child sitting in the marketplace calling to their playmates. We play the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they said, he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. So imagine, so John has a thriving ministry. So he's like out in the desert where no one like, no one, okay. Like, you don't have cars and air conditioning. So like, why would you go out into the desert? You really wouldn't, unless like your goat ran off in there, right? Okay, so there's no reason really to go in the wilderness. But they're all going into the wilderness to go see John the Baptist. And people are going by the droves. So John has like this amazing ministry. And then like, nothing. Like, it just all kind of like, it seemingly implodes. And so John, of course, has his doubts, stuck in prison. Are you the one, or shall we look for another? And just the way that Jesus responds to John, so, so kind. One of my favorite verses about speaking about Jesus, it's like how he deals with people, comes from Isaiah. Um, Isaiah says, Behold, my servant, servant whom I delight, a bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. So here's here's. John feeling bruised. He feels like, a, like a, a candle that's about to go out. And Jesus doesn't say, eh, break it, or put it out. Like, he deals gently and kindly with people when they come to him with their doubts. He's kind and he's gentle. So Jesus tells his disciples, look, miracles. Look at these miracles. The blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised to life. Is this not evidence that I am reversing the effects of sin? And the poor have good news preached to them. Now, the miracles, it seems like the miracles would be enough. Like, oh, so John, look, you will not believe what we saw happening. 
But Jesus doesn't say, look at the miracles. He says, look at the miracles and understand at the same time, this is in fulfillment of Scripture. I am truly the one that you're waiting for. And you can know it because God said, when the one who comes, the Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ, these things would start to happen. So Jesus doesn't say, hey, look at the evidence. I'm a great guy. He says, no, no, no. Look at the evidence. It fulfills Scripture spoken 600 years ago saying this was what would happen, and now you're seeing it come to fruition. And so he lists these things. I'll say it again. The blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised to life. And, and then he skips one little phrase, and the captives are set free. So it's like saying, like, by that, like, that omission, like, oh, and John's, like, you can imagine John in prison is like, wait, wait, but the captives get set free. And then, like, Jesus doesn't say anything about the captives being set free. And so, like, it's, like, it's just saying, and John, you're going to die. You're, you're not going to be set free from prison. Yes, the kingdom of the Christ has come. He has brought what was promised. But at this moment, it may not be everything you're expecting. Like, you, it's not going to be everything the way you think it should roll out. You think that, like, like, the heavenly armies will come and wipe out injustice. Not yet. Not yet. Christ has another, like God, through Christ, has another plan. Like, if he would come right now and just wipe out everyone who, who deserves his wrath, that would be the whole world. Everyone. But he would save. He would, bring, he would give the lost a chance to be saved. So that it's not everyone who dies. Are you offended? Are you offended? Now, like, we don't hear John's response. I think it's a good assumption that he's okay, right? He's like, okay, I understand. But, but like, there's a reason I think why they don't tell us what John's response was. Because it's almost like, it's almost like this, the narr- like John, who's writing this, like takes the lens and like looks at you and says, are you offended? And it's like Jesus is looking at the crowds. Are you offended by me? And believe me, we're going to get later into this chapter, not necessarily today. People were offended by Jesus. But for like John, the moment, it's almost saying, like, it's not everything expected. You're going to die. Don't stumble because of this. Don't trip and fall. Hold steady. Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. The, the word offended, like literally, like it's the word picture. Like you're walking, you're, you're walking along, and like you stow, t- like you stub your toe on a rock, and whoa, like oh, stupid rock, right? That's kind of like the idea here. Is like like Jesus gets in the way of your life and makes you trip. Okay, are you offended by that? It's a, it's a scandal to you. The, the word in Greek is scandalon, like, which is where the scandal comes from. You just get so angry about it. Now, why? Why would you be offended by this? And so the, the first thing, I think, with perspective to John, the first reason why you'd be offended is because justice will seem far off. You think that Christ did not do enough, although he's doing a lot. We have the perspective, people, of 2,000 years. To see how the church has just like grown and grown and grown. So we see that there's like, ah, oh, right. But like in that moment, John really doesn't get to see that. 
So you can be offended by that, but there's another reason why the gospel is offensive, and this has been like in the Gospel of Matthew this whole time. Why is the gospel offensive? And so you can kind of see it. The good news is preached to the poor. Okay, good news. The gospel is preached to the poor. Well, like, so we say like the gospel of Jesus Christ, gospel. Like, like where else do you hear that in the English language except for in church? Like, what does it mean? Okay, so a gospel is a official declaration of good news, of great joy for all people. So, for example, when a Caesar would, like, become the next Caesar, yay, they'd send out a gospel, like a proclamation saying, okay, by the way, something has happened way up in Rome, it's going to change your lives forever, right? And so, like, that's kind of the point of it. Now, the gospel, like, you hear, like, Caesar is now king, you're like, okay, gospel, and now, um, what is it, what is it? require of you to just accept the news of what's happened that's going to change your life or another gospel be like some like big battle is fought and like the persians have been destroyed good news gospel okay. so when jesus says the gospel has been preached to the poor what he's saying is some event has taken place that is good news to the poor who are the poor the poor are those who are crushed under the heel of society. The, the poor are those with no means of upward mobility. Like, you could try to get a better job, but you just can't keep pace with your Roman captors. The poor are those who are taken advantage of, whose, whose livelihood and well-being, whose livelihood and well-being depends on charity. And that's who Jesus came to save. So, when the site was like, don't be offended by me, the good news is for the poor. Are you poor? Do you see yourself as poor? Now, there's this um, C.S. Lewis. Have you ever read C.S. Lewis? I like him, mostly. Um, and he likes to write allegories to kind of explain truths. And so, he, he has this one book. It's called The Great Divorce. Okay, okay. And bear with me. It's an allegory. Okay. So he, so he's like, it's a dream where these people, like, they die and they stand as ghosts and they're like, oh, there's this kingdom you can go to. But then, like, some person comes and talks to them that confronts them about some issue in their heart. And it's like, okay, and, and like, the thing is, like, will you let this go to be able to go to heaven? It's like the question he's posing. So these people have this chance. And so, like, you're talking to someone, will you let this go and then go into the kingdom of God? And so what... Like, one of the most, like, for me, like, one of the most potent parts in the book is, like, this, so this one ghost, he, he dies. He was a foreman. And he had these two people working for him. And in a fit of rage, one of the workers killed the other. Okay. And then he's about, to, like, he's got this chance to, like, go to heaven. And the murderer comes up to him and says, I found forgiveness. And you can, too. Okay. And so they have this conversation. Now, this foreman's a little bit insulted that this, this wretched murderer, who I'm definitely better than, is offering, like, hey, you can come to heaven too. So here's what he says. He says, now, look at me. I've gone straight all my life. I don't say I was a religious man. I don't say that I don't have faults far from it. But I have done my best my whole life, see? I've done my best by everyone, and that's the short, sort of chap I was. I never asked for anything that wasn't mine by rights. And if I wanted a drink, 
I paid for it. And if I took my wages, I'd done a good job, see? That's the sort I was. And I don't care who knows it. I'm asking for nothing but my rights. I've always done my best, and I've never done nothing wrong. And what I don't see is why I should be put below a bloody murderer like you. To which the forgiven murderer replies, uh, Well, who knows whether you will be. Only be happy and come with me. Well, what do you keep arguing for? I'm telling you the sort of chap I am. I only want my rights. I'm not asking for anybody's bleeding charity. <laughs> to which the murderer replies, Then do, at once, ask for the bleeding charity. Everything is here for the asking, and nothing can be bought. Well, that may be very well for you, I dare say. If they choose to let in a bloody murderer, all because he makes a poor mouth at the last moment, that's their lookout. And I don't see myself going in the same boat with you, see? Why should I? I don't want charity. I'm a decent man. If I had my rights, I had been here long ago, and you can't tell me, and you can tell them I said so. To which the man replies, you can never do it like that. See, that's, that's a scandal. You have to see yourself as wretched and sinful. As sinful as ultimately as any murderer. The only difference between you and a murderer is the opportunity and, and the reason. But it's totally within your power. So you have to, like the good news is only good news to you if you see yourself as poor. Only then will you accept Christ's bleeding charity. And so that's the scandal. That is what we're being asked to. Now, Jesus isn't done. So he leaves, so he kind of leaves his moment. Don't be offended by me. And so the disciples leave, and then Jesus turns to the crowd and says, so what did you go out to see? Like, why did you go out into, like, like 120-degree heat? Did you want to go see some reeds? Right? Did you want to go see, like, some pompous guys in, like, fine clothes? No, you went to go see something. What was it? A prophet. Yes. You went to go see a prophet. Now, don't forget, like, for, for Israel... This is a big deal. Israel just had like 200-something years with no prophets. So like in, in the community of Israel, you had prophets, 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 silence. And you're sitting there going, oh, God, <laughs> what's going on? And so like there's this hope that a prophet would come. Now, we'll read this uh, in, in the book of Malachi, which is the last prophet, by the way. The last prophet said, there is one coming. There's one coming. We'll talk more about what that coming will be in a minute. But, like, there is one coming, silence. So now Israel's like, okay, is he coming or not? Coming or not? Coming or not? And they start maybe giving up a little bit of hope because, like, meanwhile, they get conquered and then conquered and then conquered again and then conquered and then the kingdom hand over some fake king. Like, no, God, great time for a prophet. And all of a sudden, you're sitting there at home. Your neighbor comes up. Do you hear there's a prophet? What? A prophet? <laughs> yeah. Let's go. Where is he? In the desert? Uh, okay, I'll go. I'll go see what this prophet's about. It's a big deal. And when you go to see John the Baptist, like, not only does, like, there's a prophet, he, like, I don't mean, like, acts, like, fakes the part, but he acts the part. Like, he's out there eating locusts, eating honey, stinky camel, like, clothes. Like, he doesn't have any possessions to call his own. He's acting, he's, he, like, you, when you, like, when you, like, you, if you're in like, what does a prophet look like? Like him? 
Like, he is exactly what I thought a prophet would look, smell like, and everything, right? And so there he is. And so Jesus says, no, you, you had reason to be excited. The problem, with, the problem is, you're not excited enough. You're not excited enough. Why? Because Jesus says, I tell you, he was more than a prophet. More than a prophet. Because he is the one of whom it was written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who I will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. So John the Baptist was more than just being a prophet. He was to be a herald. So in ancient times, if you're going to be a king and you're going to go from point A to point B, you would send someone in front of you. And like the, their job was to make sure like the roads were clear so your caravan can get through. And then you go there and say, by the way, the king's coming, just letting you know. So go ahead and get everything ready. Get your fatted cast ready. So like he prepares the way. Make sure the road's clear. Make sure the people are ready. Announcing the coming of this king. And so that's what John's supposed to do. He's supposed to come, prepare the way for the king. So he's more than just a prophet. He's a preparer. Because someone great's coming down the road. And so that's what John the Baptist did. Okay, now, okay, did he literally clear roads and say, hey, a king's coming, get your fatted calf ready? No. Do you remember what the message of John the Baptist was? Repent. Repent. So, like, you're sitting at home, some guy says, hey, new prophet on the scene. Like, yes. He's going to tell us about why the Romans are going to get kicked out of Israel. Let's go hear him. And you show up, and he looks at you and says, you need to repent. I'm like, what? No, 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 no. I am a good Jew. I'm a good person, right? I've done my rights. And John looks at you and says, no, you need to repent. And behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So you need to repent and behold Jesus Christ, who will take your sins, take them off of you, Take him off of you and take it on himself. So take away your sin. Okay, now, again, that's the scandal. Because now you've got to sit there like, oh, I've got problems. Oh, I've got issues. I need to repent? Yes. Yes, you do. That's the point. What also made John different from every other prophet, was where he stood in history. So, in Malachi, the last prophet, he says, quote, oh, excuse me, Jesus, referring to Malachi, says, for all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. As if to say, like, this is the way it's been until John the Baptist. Now it's changed. Change? And if you're willing to accept it, he is Elijah, who is to come? He who has ears, let him hear. Elijah, who's to come, what, is this reincarnation? Like, I didn't know that was in the Bible. Like, <laughs> what does that mean? Now, in Malachi says, like the prophet, like 250, 300 years before that says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord. Before the great and awesome day of the Lord. Okay, so there's this guy, Elijah, Elijah's coming back? Now, remember, Elijah didn't die, right? He got taken up into a flaming chariot, and you're like, ooh, right, this is going to be awesome. And then John the Baptist shows up, and he says, oh, he's the John the Baptist, he's the Elijah that you were to be waiting for. And you're like, wait, 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 
Like he didn't come on a chariot. I'm like that's not what I was thinking. So what do you what do you mean by that? So turn to Luke chapter one. So now we're getting to these Christmas passages. The answer to this question, Luke chapter one, verse thirteen. All right, so John the Baptist's dad was old, didn't have any kids. Sad. He goes into the temple to do some work, and an angel appears to him, and this is what the angel says. Verse 13, do not be afraid, Zachariah, Zachariah's the dad. Do not be afraid, Zachariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you should call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So in a sense, like, Elijah was a great prophet in, in the time of Israel, saying, repent, 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 and then God gave him, like, power to do it. So in the same way, Elijah, John, the, I'm going to get these two confused the whole time. John comes saying, repent, repent, repent. And because the Holy Spirit is at work through John the Baptist, people their hearts are ready and receptive to Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Now, scan down to verse 68. Okay, so then, so John says, ha, yeah, right. Remember that moment? That's my summary of it. Yeah, yeah, right. We're not having any kids. And so the angel says, okay, need a sign? Like, because that's what happened. Like, God says they're going to do something. If you don't believe it, he'll give you a sign. So his sign to John was he couldn't speak <laughs> for nine months. Like, he stopped speaking. Like, and John, and like, like Zachariah's mind is like, okay, there must be something to this, because now I can't talk for nine months. And then, and then John is born, and now all of a sudden Zachariah can speak, and so when he speaks, he gives a prophecy. And he says, verse 68, okay, now, um, when I read this, I'm thinking, like, okay, all the reasons why my son's going to be great, okay, and all the reasons why my son is going to be like this, Amazing son. But look where all the attention goes. Verse 68. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. Blessed be God. Why? For he has visited and redeemed his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation. Now that just means horns. Okay. They had big bulls with big horns. Someone shows up with big horns, you're like, that is a big bull, like really powerful. So they, they oftentimes they, they use that. It's like some strong and amazing king would be like a horn. Okay. So he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. So in other words, King David's son has arisen. He will be a great and powerful king. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show mercy promised to our fathers, to remember his holy covenant, 
the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hands of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and in righteousness before him all our days. And now he turns some attention to John. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, and you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. What makes John the greatest prophet? Jesus. Jesus, because he's the one who says, here he is. He's got the special role. That's what makes John the Baptist the greater. John the Baptist himself is a fulfillment of prophecy. The promise that God is going to do something to save his people. Jesus just doesn't appear in a vacuum. I've been reading some, like, talking and reading some people about Christianity. And, and one of the things like, yeah, you know, Jesus, great guy. But you know, Israel just had prophets the whole time. So there's nothing new about Jesus. Like, well, like, there is something different about Jesus. Jesus is more than prophet. Like, there's like the big, I don't know if you like read the internet at all. Okay. And like, everybody's like, okay, we need to figure out who the real historical Jesus is. Like, because the one in the Bible is not the historical Jesus. Like, you need to figure out who the real historical Jesus is. And so, like, like this, like, Jesus, social revolutionary, kind of calling out his people. But not divine. He didn't do miracles. Like, people can't do miracles. He didn't do miracles. Assumption, by the way. And, like, Jesus is nothing new. Like, prophets come, prophets go. Jesus is nothing special. But everything in the gospel is pointing to the fact that Jesus was something quite different. Quite different than the prophets. Because, get this, he uses a prophet to announce him. He uses a prophet to announce him. Hebrews 1.1 says, Long ago, in many times, in many ways, God spoke to us. How did he speak to us? By prophets. Okay. But, something different, but in these days, he has spoken to us by his son. The son has come. So John the Baptist ushers in the end of the era. Like God's promising, God's promising, God's promising, God's promising. And now let's start fulfilling it. Fulfill, fulfill, fulfill. So it's like, it's quite different to say something's coming down the road. And it's another thing to say, and now here it is. It's like Christmas time. You know, Christmas, like our grandparents are coming. Like, it's coming, 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 coming. Like it's all the excitement. But then they actually show up. And you're like, so much better. <laughs> right? So much better. So now is the point where the Messiah has come. Now, this should start being like a clue real quick. Like, he says the kingdom of heaven. Hmm. Kingdom of heaven. This should, like, I mean, it's easy to look back on the scripture and say, you know, you should have understood this. Right? So it says, this is the kingdom that comes from heaven. Because what are they expecting? They're expecting another kingdom of earth. Like, that's what they want. 
They want another kingdom of earth to kick out Rome, which is another kingdom of earth. And Jesus says, no, 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 different. I have a kingdom of heaven. And, and one of the points of Matthew is that the kingdom has come because the king, Jesus, showed up. And then, and then the king, Jesus, like, like does his epic battle. And it, it, I mean, if you see it as epic, but he dies on the cross for forgiveness, forgiveness of sins. Like, that is the most decisive victory mankind has ever seen, whether you see it that way or not. Sin was dealt with. Satan was plundered. So, in a sense, the kingdom has come because the king showed up. The kingdom is going on right now because it's being experienced right now in us. So, when you turn to Christ and sin starts, stops losing its appeal, like gradually, like sin just is distasteful for you, that is the kingdom of God breaking forth in your life. When God takes people and puts them together into a church, into a body, when you say, like, I like you, but I didn't think we'd be friends, <laughs> like people that you just wouldn't see yourself getting along with, but suddenly like you're put together like in a tight-knit community where you love and encourage each other and build each other up, um, that's a sign that the kingdom of God has come. So remember in Galatians, like how easy would it have been for, I think I've said this before, but how easy would it have been for like the apostles to go planting churches and cities and say, okay, we're going to do a Jewish church plant and we're going to do a Gentile church plant and then there'll be no fighting. That, that, that would have been easier. But no, Paul says in Galatians, no, no, no. If you do that, the gospel's at stake. Because now you can't say, like, God created a kingdom with a people who are all going to get along. And if you can't get along, it's an affront to the, to the gospel. It's an affront to his kingdom. So, come on, everybody. Love each other. Now, when that happens, God's helping us in that, by the way. Like, God gives us his spirit, transforms our hearts, and draws us to each other. That is the kingdom working itself out right now. Popcorn? <laughs> and it's a kingdom being experienced right now in our lives through the church, and it is a kingdom that's coming. Because as it says in Ephesians 1, God is making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. Okay, so when time reaches its fullness, okay, filled up time that God had intended for time to exist here on this earth, what are we going to find? He's going to unite all things in him, things on heaven, things on earth. So now the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of earth merge in the future. Because in Revelation it says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven, the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw a holy city, a new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice on the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. 
Neither shall be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. So that's why you could say, like, it really doesn't feel like, like I thought your kingdom would look like this. And he said, oh, it will. Just give it time. Just give it time. It's coming. But meanwhile, citizenship in this kingdom is being offered to you. Like, blessed, like, John, he's great. Yeah, I gotcha. But you'll be more blessed to be part of this kingdom. You'll be more blessed to be a citizen of this kingdom. When kingdom comes in to another kingdom, what do they call that? War. (laughs) Yeah. War. So Jesus says, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence and the violent take it by force. The kingdom of God has suffered violence and the violent take it by force. Now that's confusing. <laughs> now the first part's not confusing. The kingdom of heaven has suffered violence. And you're, uh-huh. Oh yeah, totally. Like John the Baptist, he's in prison. People have rejected the disciples. And, and like, and like fast forward a couple years, Jesus is going to be like nailed to a cross. He's going to die. Rise again, but he'll be murdered. And then, like, all the disciples, like, time, like, over time, save one, will all be murdered for the sake of the kingdom. Why? Because it's war. So, like, you're being opposed. But now, like, what's the other side? Like, okay, now how are we, like, so it's like the kingdom suffered violence, and now the violent take it by force. What's going on? So this, and, like, if you look at different translations, you can tell they're having a hard time getting this one across. So it's, it's really this reciprocal action. Like, violence has been done to me, I'm doing violence to you. And you're like, wait, 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 Jesus. <laughs> wait a second. Yeah, hold on. Are you sure you want to say the kingdom of God comes with violence? And he says, oh, yes. I've come to bring a sword. So Peter draws a sword, goes, chops off a guy's ear. He's like, no, 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 no. You must understand. That's not what I meant by a sword. The kingdom of God dishes out its own violence, but just in a different way. So the violence that Jesus is proposing is different. And we know this because context, like, like before chapter 11, there's chapter 10. Before chapter 10, there's chapter 5, 6, and 7. Like there's a whole bunch of clues all around saying like what Jesus meant by violence. Um, because in this passage specifically, Jesus says, be meek, be lowly. And it's talking about Jesus, like, people are rejecting Jesus. Why? Because he's friends to the sinners. And Jesus also said in, King, in like, Matthew chapter 6, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Like, justice, right? Someone takes your eye, take his eye. Someone takes your tooth, take his tooth. Like, like justice, right? And, like, and if someone makes you walk a mile, do what? Wait, wait, you mean don't make him go walk a mile for you? Because, like, so here's what Jesus, like, this is crazy. This is crazy. What is Jesus proposing? Like, if you feel like justice is owed you, like, if someone forced you to march a mile and carry their bags for them because they had, like, power over you, instead of demanding justice, like, demanding reciprocal action, absorb it. You enact their punishment, right? You walk the extra mile that they, you feel they deserve to give you. And if you get slapped in one cheek, instead of slapping them back, you take the second slap. Take their side. 
take their hit. Because that's what Jesus did. Like, that's the violence he's proposing. It's so counterintuitive. And then, I guess it sounds a little cheesy. I shouldn't have said that. Maybe I should let you decide if it was cheesy. It's, like, it's, the, it's the violence of love. And it's the strength of meekness, not weakness. Meekness with an M. Meekness. It's the violence of love. It's the strength of meekness. Like, that is what we're called to be. And don't dismiss this as allegory. Because the kingdom of God, through love and through meekness, and through a foolish gospel message of a crucified king, I mean, like, the pagans are going to go talk to, it's all about strength. And if your God gets killed, bad news. Like, you're no longer a strong nation. And we go, like, our God was killed. And our God was raised. Different. It's like, it's a silly message. But don't take it like an allegory. It is literal. Christ has forcefully entered the earth and has spread the proclamation of that gospel. Good news, Jesus came. Whereby hearts are turned to serve the living and true God by people who boldly proclaim his message and who forgive people and love people and serve people. They do acts of love and mercy. They're like their Jesus, like their king. And when he does, when Christ works through us like that, he's conquering the nations of the world. And if you are going to be part of this kingdom, expect to feel the violence. Because Jesus just doesn't come to our lives and leave us as we are. He comes to our lives and demands, demands, and then produces new affections, new desires, new tastes. You begin to love what God loves, hate what God hates. And when you do that, it starts rupturing relationships. Like, your buddies are like, you used to be cool. I had this pastor friend. He was, he was the guy who'd go, like, he'd have all the party drugs when you come to, a, like, a party in Tahoe. And he'd show up, he'd always do it with, like, drench coat because he'd think he's cool. And he'd be like, what do you want? Got it all, right? Like, and, he, and people, like, exchange casts at these parties. And then he gets saved, and he starts showing up with gospel tracks. Like, two parties later, he wasn't invited to any more parties. Like, the first time, it was a joke, and he was serious. The second time, you're like, okay, you know what? Buzzkill, get out of here, right? And... <laughs> Right? So, so, like, it starts rupturing old relationships, and it starts destroying old habits. So, like, sin, which you used to thought was so cool, like, makes you sick to your stomach. And becomes agony to your heart, because you realize that, like, when you sin, it keeps you from Jesus. It keeps you that fellowship from being sweet. And Jesus says in chapter 10, Do not think I've come to bring a peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace but the sword. For I've come to set man against his father, daughter against mother, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. A person's enemy will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake. We'll find it. 
So in other words, you've got to admit there's a problem. And then Christ will begin dismantling you and cutting into you and like hurting you. But it's all for good. One of the biggest differences, from what I can tell, and I'm not like super scholar on this one, like Christianity versus other religions. Like all other religions seem to say, okay, here's how you get saved. Now do these good things. Like follow this pattern, model your life this way, and then God will be okay with you. Or, or you'll get saved in whatever salvation is um, according to that religion. Christianity spins that around, flips it, and says, you can't save yourself, your king will come to save you. The king will come in might and in power. That's why it's a gospel. You can't win your battles. Christ has to win your battles. And when good things start happening in your life, do you know what the Bible calls it? Fruit. You're an apple tree. Make apples. Like, no, you don't. God, by the power of his spirit, starts changing you. We need Christ. We need Christ to save us. We need Christ to make us good people. Because the older I get, the more I realize I can't really change myself. Like, like, the more I get older, like, can self-reflect, the more I realize, like, what a wretched man I am. Who will save me? <laughs> Jesus. Jesus comes. He dies to bring people to himself. He sits at a table with the sinners and the tax collectors. And at first you say, oh, those horrible people, but then you realize he's sitting with you. And on the cross, Jesus was forsaken by his Father so that we might have fellowship. And if you think you're okay with God already because of what a great person you are, then you're going to be offended. And you won't accept his bleeding charity. But if you admit your brokenness, you'll see nothing greater than his bleeding charity. So let's come to the table and fellowship and enjoy his charity.
says, come, everyone who thirsts, come to the water. He who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Are you thirsty? Then he has what you need. You can't afford it. That's right. You cannot. That's why he bought it and it's free. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Why have you spent your life pursuing the wrong things? But listen diligent to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in rich food. Incline your ear, come to me, hear that your soul may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and let the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. So we come 
Lord, we come then asking that you would satisfy us. Lord, we come to listen, to incline our ear to you, to hear from you, Lord, for we know that at the end of the day, the only thing that will satisfy us is you. Lord, I pray, Lord, that we would see ourselves as thirsty and that we'd find you as the thing that will satisfy. We thank you for your love and for your compassion and for your abundant, abundant mercy. So Paul says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that Jesus Christ on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this, is, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Because you need this. You need Christ. You need God like you need food. You need God like you need drink. Without him, you will die. And for as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So, if you all stand, we'll close.